Oh, it's lovely to be here with you this morning. Um, thank you so much for, for having us. Uh, I think you've met my husband, Jonathan, before. He's, he's spoken here. Um, but we're normally at Sindal Baptist Church and I'm a member of the pastoral team uh, there. But it's lovely to have the opportunity to be here with you this morning. And uh, yeah, we, we both really enjoyed being on the staff team with both Sandy and Mason in Wodonga. So that's where we're Wodonga friends, uh, the Taylors and the Starks from way back. And uh, it, they were some great years where we were on the team together. So unfortunately, I don't get to be here at the same time that uh, Mason and Sandy are here to be able to catch up with them. And, and I haven't been able to come when Jonathan's come previously. But it's great to be here and actually experience Freeway Baptist and uh, be with you guys this morning. Um, do you know, uh, Hebrews... 11 verse 6 is a, a verse uh, that's familiar to many of us and this is what it says. And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly see him. Now fairly clearly it's saying that without faith we're unable to please God and so we can assume it's also saying that with faith, or a certain kind of faith, we are able to please God. A lot of people say, you know, I have faith or um, I believe in God, but I wonder if it's the kind of faith that the writer to the Hebrews here is talking about, the kind of faith that pleases God. You know, if we can either please God by having a certain kind of faith or it's impossible to do so because we don't, then it's kind of important, isn't it, to know what kind of uh, God-pleasing faith we ought to have so that we can exercise it, isn't it? In fact, there's a certain type of faith and we're going to be looking at it this morning uh, in, in this couple of conversations that Jesus has with the centurion, kind of via a third party really on a couple of occasions. And uh, it's the kind of faith that doesn't just please God, but actually amazes him. It amazes Jesus in this passage. Do you remember this verse uh, in verse 9 that was just read out to us? When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. I wonder what it was about this man's faith, this Gentile person's faith actually that amazes Jesus normally in the gospels it's it's Jesus who does and says things that amaze people isn't it uh, but this is one of only two places in scripture where Jesus himself is said to be amazed the other time uh, was when he began his public ministry in his hometown of Nazareth and his fellow Jews rejected him and it says he was amazed at their lack of faith. You know, what can be more terrible than to amaze the Son of God with your lack of faith? But on the other hand, what could be more wonderful than to amaze him with our faith? And the centurion in, in the conversations that we're going to sort of eavesdrop in on this morning, he had this kind of amazing faith. So, Let's have a look together at what it was that made this faith amazing and how we can have that kind of faith uh, today that amazes Jesus. So let's have a look. Uh, we're going to have a look at the passage uh, 
sort of verse by verse as we go along today. But the, the passage is found in Luke 7 and it describes the fundamentals of the kind of faith that not only pleases God but amazes Jesus. That the heart of the story, though, isn't actually the healing of the centurion's servant. It's important, though, because without it, uh, the story wouldn't exist, but it's just the framework for what, we're, uh, what Luke wants to highlight for us. And what's most important is the centurion's faith. It all takes place immediately after the naming of the 12 disciples and Jesus' great sermon on the plain, as it's called. Jesus ended this sermon by challenging his hearers to put what he'd been preaching into practice. And so now, with all of them still hanging around, he wants to show them an example of someone who was doing just that. Jesus wanted his hearers to learn from a Gentile's faith. So the setting, it's fairly ordinary. Let's start by looking at the first couple of verses. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum and there a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. Centurions were commonplace. Uh, the centurion in our story would have been a middle-ranking uh, military officer equivalent in rank to a modern-day army captain who normally commanded about 100 soldiers. Death was also pretty ordinary in the ancient world. Um, Most people were not expected to reach what we would call middle-aged. But what was out of the ordinary was the way in which this centurion cared about his servant. The original word translated valued highly here literally means that the centurion honoured his servant. He considered him to be more than just a valuable commodity. He cared about him as a person. Let's have a look at the next couple of verses. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. You know, what's also really extraordinary in this story is the fact that this Gentile, a captain in the occupying Roman army, actually asked some Jewish elders for help. And even more extraordinary, they went eagerly. There was no way these guys were going to be running around at the beck and call of just anyone and even less likely for a Gentile soldier. But in this case, it's exactly what they did. Often soldiers in this centurion's position, they would despise the local people uh, as an inferior race. But this man didn't. It seems from the passage that he'd come to love and respect the Jewish people and had even paid for the building of the local synagogue. Luke presents the centurion as a humble Gentile looking in at Israel's and Israel's God from the outside, liking what he sees and opening himself up to learning new truths from this strange and this ancient way of life. Maybe he was a soldier who followed the Roman custom of uh, respecting religion as a socially healthy force in the empire. Uh, But the assertion that he loves our nation, it probably indicates that he was a bit more than this, that he was, in the the language of the day, a God-fearer, someone who accepted the Jewish God but hadn't actually become 
a convert officially. So the elders get it right in one sense. They understood that the centurion loved the Jewish people and had contributed significantly uh, out of his own pocket towards their synagogue. But then they go and they they put their own spin on it. Uh, They insist that because of this, because of what he had done, that he deserves or literally that he is worthy to have Jesus heal his servant. I mean, it's, it's their own spin, not the Bible's, isn't it? Uh, their rationale, it was purely external. He loves our nation, he's built our synagogue, uh, not internal, that he's humble, he's meek, he's godly, even though he may have been all of these things. So these elders, they were singing his praises uh, for the kinds of works with which some people today may think that they can earn heaven. It's like if you were advertising that you were going to build a new church building or start a new not-for-profit and you were trying to solicit donations with the promise that donors were going to have their names inscribed on a plaque and then you'd probably see the money rolling in, wouldn't you? But in, you know, in the Bible, in the Old and in the New Testament, it teaches us that a plea of worthiness from anyone is totally unsustainable before God. Isaiah 64 verse 6, uh, it says, All of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Even something that has the appearance of righteousness on the surface becomes as filthy rags before God if we're doing it for the wrong reasons. The elders in our story, they presented such a surface argument, didn't they, for, for Jesus' involvement because that was the way they were used to analysing their own lives. It was all about externals. It was all about how they appeared before others, not what was really going on in their hearts. And like these Israelites, um, we'd have to be fairly bold, wouldn't we, to to claim any kind of worthiness before God. And even if we we think we can and that our hearts are pure, then Jeremiah the prophet, he he reminds us of the sombre reality in Jeremiah 17, that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It appears that the centurion, though, did understand this somewhat. Let's see what happens next in the story. So Jesus went with him, went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends this time to say to him, Lord, I don't, uh, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. So after sending his delegation of elders off to get Jesus, it seems like he must have had a, a bit of a, some second thoughts and maybe realised that um, a devout Jew like Jesus probably wouldn't want to, uh, wouldn't think it was appropriate to enter into the house of a Gentile. And so the centurion, he, he decides then he's going to send a delegation of his friends to follow up this time uh, to meet Jesus. It might also have been the case that perhaps he'd gotten word that had uh, come back to him about how he'd been misrepresented by the elders before Jesus as being worthy or deserving of his actions, which is actually how they had presented him. So he implores Jesus through his delegation of friends. And he says, look, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof and I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. He wants to correct any false impression. Through his words and through his actions, this centurion, he stands out as someone 
who's incredibly humble. He has a true understanding of who he really is before Jesus, doesn't he? And I think that's the first element of having a faith that amazes. It's our first point this morning. Faith that amazes Jesus is faith that sees yourself for who you really are before him. The centurion obviously saw himself for who he really was. He had a healthy consciousness of his own sin. You know, once we see ourselves as we really are and take into consideration not only our, the actions that are, are external and visible to others but also what's on the inside, perhaps self-centred tendencies or impure thoughts or unrestrained indulgences or mean-spiritedness and so much else that's internal and perhaps never comes to the surface or perhaps not even aware of. Once, once we acknowledge that that's there though, there's no way we could ever say or even think that I'm deserving of you, Jesus. Maybe there are some who feel inclined to say this at times, but I'd suggest the problem isn't that they are unique, but that perhaps they are more of a stranger to themselves than they realise. You know, we can, we can tend to look at the flaws and the imperfections of, in others and focus on them so intently, but then we can look at our own hearts and we can fail to see our own ugliness and sinful tendencies and that's an unhealthy unconsciousness of our own sin. Kent Hughes in his commentary on this passage, he suggests that no one is in a position to understand Christ and Christianity who is not acquainted with his or her own evil nature. We're all probably a bit like this guy. You know, we can give the appearance of being uh, worthy and deserving, but we all need to be realistic about the, the despicable in each of us. Underneath the surface, there are times when all of us, we, in one way or another, we just want to pop that little kid's balloon or, or get out that freeze gun um, or maybe do something even a little bit more drastic. And if we don't recognise that, then as we said before, we're probably a bit more of a stranger to ourselves than we realise. You know, C.S. Lewis, uh, whoops, uh, in writing to an old friend, he commented, the one essential symptom of the regenerate or, or born again in Christ uh, life is a permanently horrified perception of one's natural and it seems unalterable corruption. The true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. I had to look up what cesspool is. It's actually a pit for receiving the sediment of a drain or the sewerage from a house. Um, Lewis understood that there needs to be a, a healthy, in fact an essential consciousness of sin. So let's get real. Let's, let's identify with the despicable that resides in all of us and, and not ignore our sin. I, I remember an occasion recently, it was uh, my birthday and normally we go out as a family uh, for dinner with my my brother and his wife and kids and mum and dad and we go out to a restaurant and um, but my dad is in rehab at the moment and has been in there for quite a long time and and he wasn't going to be able to come out with us so we decided I, I had the idea that instead of going out for for dinner uh, to a restaurant and, and dad not be able to come with us that uh, we'd take dinner to dad in rehab and we'd all bring takeaway and we'd bring a birthday cake and we'd all celebrate my birthday with him and the family and um, 
But, you know, when you organise something like that, you don't just rock up, you know, rock out to a restaurant, everything's there for you, you don't have to give it another thought. But bringing takeaway, and we'd organised Thai, because that's what we all like, so then I had to organise bringing the takeaway plates and the plastic um, cutlery and the drink and the cups and then it was my birthday so the person whose birthday it is has to organise their own cake and so that involved bringing another set of plates and serviettes and and in the end you know we're there in the rehab hospital and I'm getting all of this organised and I'm setting everything out and then I'm cleaning it all up in between the main and the dessert and and then I'm getting the can I even had to think of the candles for my own birthday cake and so I'm sitting there and I started to think a little bit like yeah you know I, I I was thinking that you know, externally it was an unselfish thing to do and I was thinking of including my dad and, and it was all about everybody else. But you know what? When I started to think, I'm doing everything here <laughs> and no one else is doing anything else and this is my birthday and this is supposed to be all about me and I just sensed this growing resentment. And so what I was recognising on the inside was there was an inner cesspool of selfishness and resentment and it, it was all about me actually even though on the surface and externally I wanted to look like it was all about my dad and all about everybody else. And I was very quickly becoming reacquainted with the despicable within. We need to identify with the despicable that resides in all of us and not ignore our sin but in doing that we're not to forget that there's grace we're not to go around lisping like Donald Duck did in the old cartoon, if you remember Donald Duck. You know, I'm a despicable person. I'm a despicable person. Um, yes, we're sinful and we're undeserving of God's grace, but we're also made in the image of God. And each of us in that midst of our despicability still reflects some of that image by his grace. Even grew from despicable me, was made in the image of God, as much as that fictional or animated human being can be, that is, and he ends up revealing Christ-like characteristics of love and compassion towards the little girls that he has adopted and who pull at his heartstrings, and it's, it's really sweet when you actually catch a glimpse of them if you've watched the movie, as you see them rising to the surface. He's despicable, yes, but that's not all that he is. And you know what else? You know, when we've seen our own despicability and we understand our own humanity and our propensity to wander, then we can never really look self-righteously upon somebody else, can we? Someone who doesn't know Christ yet or even someone who does but who may be a little bit off track and who spoke. And we can't focus on their despicability because there's despicability in all of us, isn't there? And thankfully Jesus sees it and he loves us anyway. He doesn't just love and help people who are worthy, as Paul says in Romans, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, despicable me's, Christ died for us. And so faith that amazes is faith that sees yourself for who you really are. But there's another element of amazing faith displayed by the centurion in our story this morning. And it's this, faith that amazes Jesus, this faith that sees Jesus for who he really is. Let's have a look at the next couple of verses in the passage. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word 
and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. The centurion had grasped the very centre of the Jewish faith that the one true God, the God of Israel, was the sovereign God, the Lord of heaven and earth. He actually says, uh, the, the last verse, oh, that's right, um, Lord of heaven and earth, and he grasped it in this shocking new form. This one true God was personally present and active in Jesus of Nazareth. He saw and he understood the implications of Jesus' power, that the one who has power over life and death, who can heal with a word, must not only be from God and of God, but must be God himself. So this Roman officer, a Gentile, a man of wealth and local prominence, not only regarded himself as undeserving of having Jesus a Jewish Galilean peasant come under his roof, but he even considered himself unworthy of meeting Jesus in the street. That's humility and we've seen that. But not also that, he also understands who Jesus really is, that he's God. And he understands the authority that Jesus has because he is God. If Jesus just says the word, if he just issues the order, the healing will occur, even from a distance. He illustrates his understanding by appealing to his own role as a man in authority. All he has to do is issue an order and it's obeyed. It's like the soldier who's walking forward slowly in the jungle. His task is to protect some villagers from terrorists and every step means potential danger and suddenly a command reaches him on his radio. His senior officer has seen where the enemy are hiding and he has to obey instantly, not only for his own sake but in order to get the job done It isn't what he's expecting, it's not even necessarily what he thinks he should be doing but he's been trained to do what he's been told without hesitation. That kind of clear authority and automatic obedience, it's vital in certain jobs. Authority like this works almost like a machine. An order goes out from the top and each rank underneath does what they are told, passing on the word to those below them but most of us don't really live in that kind of tight or or clear authority structures, do we, uh, like that? But there are always people that we respect in our places of work, people whose decisions we accept and we go along with and whose instructions we carry out regardless of whether we agree with them, the reasoning behind them or not. And so we can make the mistake of thinking that God's authority isn't as definite as that of a commanding officer, for example, that it's more like the the less direct models of authority that uh, we've known in other aspects of our lives. I mean, it's true, obviously, that God's sovereignty over the world is exercised with such love and compassion that the image of a commanding officer organising a battle and barking at troops to fall into line, it isn't really the best picture to use when trying to illustrate God's authority. But... As N.T. Wright suggests, if we see God's authority, which is at work in Jesus, as any less absolute than that of a commanding military officer, then we are, according to this passage, not only mistaken but actually lacking in faith itself. So we come to this uh, verse again. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. 
And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Jesus is amazed at this centurion. The reason is the sheer quality of his faith. It's not an abstract belief about God. It's not just a belief in doctrinal statements. It's the simple, clear belief that when Jesus commands that something be done, it will be done. He regards Jesus like a military officer with authority over sickness and health. If Jesus says that someone is to get well, they will. It's because he is God and he has authority. And yet he also understood God's compassion to heal. He believed Jesus could heal by a simple, sovereign word and that he could heal at a physical distance as much as he could heal from up close, a situation that applies even more so to us today in the light of Jesus' absence from us physically in his presence in heaven. And he knew that Jesus cared, that he could not only heal, but that he cared enough to do so. And that's the kind of faith that amazes Jesus. The centurion had amazing faith, faith that saw himself for who he really was before Jesus. It was a faith that expressed itself in humility and which recognised that God, in fact, owed him nothing. And he had amazing faith also because he saw Jesus for who he really was. He understood that as God, he not only had the authority, but the compassion to heal. What could be simpler? And it's the kind of faith that this passage calls us to, knowing who we are, but knowing who Jesus is. God owes us nothing, yet he extends his compassion toward us. God honours us with his grace, not because we deserve it, but because he cares. I wonder if if we ever think of ourselves as deserving of God's grace, as the elders saw this centurion. I mean, do we ever inwardly think that because we love the church or we turn up fairly regularly to services, that we maybe we even get along to a Bible study during the week, do we ever think that we're worthy of God's care because of that? Or what about the fact that we might give a certain percentage of our money or, or does that ever cause us to think that God actually owes us something? Have we ever secretly internalised the good opinions that others have of us so that um, despite the persistent teaching of the Bible that salvation comes through faith and that it's a gift from God, do we ever imagine that we'll somehow make it into the kingdom because of our personal virtue. I wonder if we ever see Christians who talk the walk but don't really walk the talk and then we reason with ourselves that because we're walking the talk and our life is better, more holy than theirs, that we've nailed this Christian life thing and that on this basis we'll make it into the kingdom. Maybe we've even thought that surely God's going to answer this prayer because, you know, um, I've persisted and I've hung in there and I'm trying to do the right thing by him. I mean, he owes it to me. If that's the case for any of us, then I would suggest that maybe we're not seeing things as they really are. Firstly, we're not seeing ourselves as we really are before him, apart from the grace of God that our heart is desperately evil. Self is at the centre of our universe rather than him and the reality is that, like the centurion, we're not worthy all of our supposed righteousness, we're not cut it with him. 
We're so used to analysing our lives by the external rather than the internal and we, we do that with others too. Maybe our problem is that we actually think that others are more worthy or deserving than us to have God act on their behalf and we think that because they're more holy or they're more committed to us then that's why they had their lives more together or why everything's falling into place for them and the, or seemingly God is answering their prayers more often. But God owes none of us anything. Yet he chooses to extend his compassion to us and he honours us with his grace, not because we deserve it but because he cares. And that's our only hope, the love and the grace of Christ. The psalmist expresses it like this. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. He understood that our appeal before God to act on our behalf is on the basis of his goodness and mercy, not on response to anything that we might perceive to be our own goodness. And we need to get that, don't we? We need to see ourselves as who we really are and that without hope in this world and the next, apart from the love and the grace of Christ. And do we see Jesus for who he really is or for who we say we think that he is, that he's our God? Do you know how we can know? Well, let me suggest that he is our God to the extent that our consistent response to him is like that of the centurion, which was essentially just say the word Jesus and it's done. That that was his reply essentially, wasn't it? He recognised that not only did sickness need to respond to Jesus' authority but that he did too. Just say the word, Jesus. I wonder how often we have prayed that prayer. You know, just say the word, Jesus, and it's done. I'm onto it. How often have we responded? I'm onto it, Jesus. It's done. His word to us might be, forgive that person who has wronged you. It's done, Jesus. They're forgiven. Or his word might be, serve on that ministry team even though you feel inadequate. It's done, Jesus. Or give away this amount of money. It's done, Jesus. Or sit next to that person who's all on their own instead of talking to your friends. Okay, it's done, Jesus. Or honour your wife and your hus- or your husband above yourself. It's done, Jesus. Stop talking about that person behind their back. It's, it's done, Jesus. Or his word might be, go and say sorry. And he's our word, it's done, Jesus. Is that the cry of our heart? Just say the word, Jesus, and it's done. That needs to be the cry of our heart if we say we're a follower of Jesus because followers follow. (laughs) They obey. They do what he says. Just say the word, Jesus, and it's done. And you know what? Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he wasn't prepared to do himself. Remember the cry of Jesus in the garden on the night before he was betrayed when he was anticipating the agony of the cross and this was the cry of his heart, yet not my will but yours be done, Father. Just say the word, Father, and it's done. Are we as his servants any greater than our master? Surely not. Just say the word, Jesus, and it's done. I'm on to it. Maybe you're thinking, well, that is the cry of my heart, but sometimes I'm just so unsure about what that word is to me, what the now word of Jesus is. How do I know what the word that he's saying to me is so that I can do it? You know, sometimes we hear his word speaking to us in our hearts or in our conscience, 
But maybe for you, you often you don't know what the word is because you're not spending enough time in the word. In order to say, just say the word so we can respond to it, we actually need to position ourselves in the word, don't we? That a word that he's already given to us, the Bible, his primary way of speaking to us, so that we can consistently hear his now words to us. It really comes back to this. If we're not in the word, then his words will never be in us and we'll find it difficult to hear the word. We won't be able to respond. It's done, Jesus. But if we're in the word regularly, therefore his words can be in us and then when he says the word, we'll hear and we'll recognise his voice and we'll be able to respond. It's done, Jesus. I think that's what it means, to have a faith that not only pleases God but amazes Jesus, a faith that sees yourself for who you really are and a faith that sees Jesus for who he really is and enables us to respond with just say the word, Jesus, and it's done. Archibald Rutledge, who was an American poet and and educator, he wrote that one day he met a man whose dog had just been killed in a forest fire. Heartbroken, the man explains to Rutledge how it had happened. Because he worked out of doors, he often took his dog with him. And that morning he left the animal in a clearing and he'd given him a command to stay and to watch his lunch bucket while he went into the forest to do his work. And his faithful friend, his dog, understood that's exactly what he did. Later that morning a fire started in the woods and soon the blaze spread to the spot where the dog had been left. But he didn't move. He stayed right where he was in perfect obedience to his master's word. With tearful eyes, the dog's owner said, I always had to be careful what I told him to do because I knew he would do it. You know, there's a sense in which God doesn't have to be careful about what he tells us to do because he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, He's all loving, he's our sovereign and our compassionate God and we know him for who he really is. And when he asks us to do something, we can know that it's always for his glory and for our best interests. But I wonder if he knows that we will do it when he asks us to do something. Does he know that you will stay when he says stay? Does he know that you'll go when he says go? Does he know that our response will be just say the word Jesus and it's done? I wonder if you've made that decision already regardless of circumstances that when he says the word that your response will be it's done, Jesus. Fortunately for us, whether it involves walking through the fire or through the waters, we can know that our master is not off in the distance on the other side of the fire but he is with us. And he can be trusted. And we can be those who in the midst of whatever circumstances can show amazing faith and respond, just say the word Jesus and it's done. Let's commit to being that kind of people. And why don't we ask Jesus to help us this week as we seek to show that kind of faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we live in a a culture that promotes self sufficiency and and independence as virtues. It demands that we 
yield authority over ourselves to, to no one else, but it would violate your glory and it would violate our own nature to not give you the lordship over our lives. And so together, God, we want to cry out to you. Just say the word Jesus and it's done. That's, that's what we want to declare this morning in our hearts, that we're going to make that decision, that it's already done, whatever you say. We want to echo Jesus' words, yet not my will, but yours be done. So Lord, we'll willingly obey whatever you say and accept whatever you send. We'll stay when you say stay. We'll go when you say go, whether we understand it or not, knowing that you're with us in the fire, that you'll never leave us. And God, we pray this in your name, Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth and for your glory. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you.